I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Ceasefire extinguished. Benjamin Netanyahu calls the latest Hamas demands delusional. But a veteran negotiator tells us a ceasefire and a two-state solution are the only ways to keep Israelis and Palestinians safe. Parental responsibility. A Michigan mother is found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for a school shooting committed by her teenage son. The father of one of his victims tells us why he feels that is a step forward. Hunger so deep it is deadly. The medical charity MSF says 13 children are dying every day at a camp for displaced people in Sudan's North Darfur region. The end of the roads. Four isolated First Nations in northeastern Manitoba declare a state of emergency when unusually warm weather closes the winter roads and leaves the communities cut off. You've got plum tomatoes and you've got the plumest tomato. The creator of the Purple Tomato explains why they are the first genetically modified food crop to be marketed directly to home gardeners and why she thinks it might make GMO skeptics shift their thinking. And breaches of etiquette. The punishment for a British police officer really hits below the belt. He was found to have committed gross misconduct and demoted for selling a pair of his police pants for really cheap. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that would never be caught with its pants marked down. There is no solution besides total victory. Those were the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's words today. His answer to a Hamas ceasefire proposal, which made demands for a complete withdrawal from Gaza by the Israeli military and an offer to release some hostages in exchange for Palestinians in Israeli prisons over the course of several months. Gershon Baskin helped negotiate an exchange between Israel and Hamas in 2011. He's now the Middle East director of the International Communities Organization, a human rights advocacy group. We reached him in Jerusalem. Gershon, we last spoke to you near the end of October after the first hostages were released by Hamas. Today, we're hearing Benjamin Netanyahu say the only solution is absolute victory, calling the counterproposal for the ceasefire deal from Hamas, quote, delusional. But U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is saying it creates space for a deal to be reached. What do you hear when you hear all of those words? Are we actually closer to a deal now than we were before? No, I think we're not. I think that Netanyahu closed the door on the possibility of genuine negotiations, although the Americans are pushing hard to keep their foot in the door and keeping it open. There is a Hamas delegation heading to Cairo tomorrow to meet with the central intelligence in Egypt to see if they can find some way of making a deal. There is a small possibility if Hamas would be willing to separate the first phase 
of the ceasefire that they have proposed from the second and third phases, which Israel rejects because essentially it leaves Hamas in power in Gaza with Israel withdrawing its forces from the Gaza Strip, and that's unacceptable to Israel. But if Hamas would be willing to have a 45-day ceasefire, during which time hostages, civilian hostages would be released in exchange for a reasonable number of Palestinian prisoners, Mm -hmm. then a deal could be made. Over the last few days, there have been murmurs of proposals, counter-proposals, possibility of a ceasefire deal. We've seen these movements. Were you feeling hopeful at all during those conversations? You know, I I speak to families of hostages almost every day, and I have to be hopeful for them. Um, This is such a tragic situation for those families and for the whole country who feel betrayed by the government of what happened on October 7th, when there was no one there to defend the citizens of Israel as Hamas invaded and committed those atrocities. So hope is the only thing that we have to keep going on day by day. Israel is a traumatized society, just as Palestine is today. And for Israel, this is the biggest trauma since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. We have not yet left October 7th. We're still there. We're witnessing it every day in the television, in the newspapers, in the stories of the hostages, of the families, of the people who were killed. We're, We're really stuck. What message then should the families take from Mr. Netanyahu's words today? They should be upping their protest and making a lot more noise It is the Israeli government who has got to decide that the hostages have to come first. The war can wait. They can finish the war after the hostages are back, if that's what they want to do, Mm -hmm. to completely annihilate the Hamas leadership. That can be done at another time, but first the hostages have to come home. We know that about a fifth of them have already been killed. The numbers I hear are even higher than that, and the government is not talking about that, but Mm -hmm. it's believed that maybe even 50 of the 136 hostages are no longer alive, and every day they're at risk. We heard those those reports earlier this week. Have you received any information that that leads you to believe it's it's more than than just reporting that's what i've heard mm-hmm. from different people in the israeli official mm-hmm. uh, government and, and military um it, it only becomes official when they notify families that their loved ones are no longer alive when they have two sources of information intelligence information video footage uh, information that they've gathered from prisoners that they've taken out of gaza that they will make a determination that the person is no longer alive. But the official number now, I think, is 31 of the 136 who have been reported to their families that they are no longer alive. What do you think would actually force Benjamin Netanyahu's hand here? I'm not sure that we can force his hand. Netanyahu is also concerned that once the war is over or there's a prolonged ceasefire, that he's going to have his day of reckoning with the people of Israel. There's going to be a demand for a national commission of inquiry headed by a Supreme Court judge to investigate who's responsible for what happened on October 7th and everything that led to it. Netanyahu is the only person in the um, higher echelons of the Israeli government military who refuses to take any responsibility. There are signs being put up around the country. You're the head you're responsible, and Netanyahu refuses to take that responsibility, but the people of Israel will hold him responsible, and he's aware of that, so he has a mixed interest. He believes, as he said tonight, that they will defeat Hamas, that they will kill the Hamas leaders, and then the hostages will be freed. 
I think that's a big, big gamble, because if they do meet the Hamas leaders somewhere in the bunkers and tunnels of Gaza, they're probably surrounded by hostages who are going to get hit in the crossfire. And there's no guarantee that the people who are holding other hostages will release them. If their leaders are killed, they may just execute the hostages as well. It's a very dangerous game that Netanyahu is playing. You've been in these kinds of negotiations before. We talked about this in our last conversation back in October. Um, You've also written an an op-ed today saying that that deterrence hasn't worked when you're talking about Hamas, that this will only, as others have told us in interviews as well, that this, in your view, in their view, will will breed more more fighters. It will. Um, Hamas, who base their uh, ideology on a theology of death, on a theology which teaches people that they need to be martyrs for Palestine and for Jerusalem and for the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What we need to do to defeat Hamas is to make Palestine real for Palestinians. And that requires the important nations of the world, the OEC countries, including Canada, to recognize the state of Palestine now. We've had 30 years of countries all around the world talking about a two-state solution while only recognizing one. Israel has been granted a veto on Palestinian statehood, and that can't exist anymore. We have to tell Palestinians that they need to stop dying for Palestine, and they need to start living for Palestine. But Palestine has to be real for them. And that means that countries like the United States and Canada and the big countries of Europe need to recognize Palestine and grant Palestine membership in the United Nations. That's the first step toward making Palestine real and to defeating Hamas. And the only viable solution has to be a two-state solution where both peoples have the same right to the same rights, that we both have the right to self-determination. Palestinians will not have dignity and freedom if Israel doesn't have security, and Israel won't have security if the Palestinians don't have freedom and dignity. There's a, a, a balance here that needs to be met, and we need the help of the world to do it. Gershon, thank you very much for your time once again. Thank you. Gershon Baskin is the Middle East Director of the International Communities Organization. We reached him in Jerusalem. In Cape Breton, a local state of emergency was declared because of severe winter weather. In a handful of provinces over, the opposite is true. Yesterday, the chiefs of four isolated First Nations in northeastern Manitoba declared a state of emergency due to unusually warm weather. The winter roads the communities rely on to bring in essential supplies like fuel have not been able to open yet, and supplies are running out. Charles Knott is the chief of Garden Hill First Nation. We reached him in Winnipeg. Chief Knott, how much fuel does your community have left right now? What I was told yesterday was we only got about a week's left. And when that all runs out, what will that mean for people there? Well, <laughs> that's going to be, we, we need our fuel for our school buses and our uh, water trucks, sewer trucks, you know. We need fuel in the community and uh, Winter Road hasn't opened yet in our section. Yeah. And uh, no, we haven't gotten any trucks in yet as of this year. And it's very late in the year already. Yeah. It, it, what other supplies do you need? If those trucks were, were moving as they would normally, what would they be bringing? Oh, lots uh, from uh, housing materials to fuel, essential needs, dry goods and stuff that the community needs to last uh, till uh, next uh, winter season. Yeah. 
this is our lifeline. Winter Roads is our lifeline. And it only opens like two months every year. You know, that's when we have to truck in our goods. Yeah, yeah. And now this year has been hectic. You know, warm weather, climate changes. I want to ask you about about all of those things, but just for our listeners and anyone who who hasn't seen this road before, can you describe the condition it is in right now? Well, this year, uh, you know, when you construct a winter road, you need snow. The, as you can imagine, there's a lot of creek crossings that we go through to build the uh, winter roads, and uh, we need snow to make snow bridges. You know. And this year we haven't had any much snow and that makes it difficult to construct a, a winter road this year. Mm-hmm. And it's been raining for the past two days in Island Lake region. It's been a struggle this year. It's very different from previous years. Every year it's getting to be difficult mm-hmm. to construct the winter roads. When you speak to elders and, and your own experiences, as you've been saying, this is this uh, this is different. Yeah. How rare is it to see, you know, how, when have you seen rain like this in February before? Oh, I, for, for my lifetime, I haven't seen any rain. For me, it's the first time I've, I've seen this kind of weather, you know, middle of February. That's when you expect the cold weather to hit. But now it's raining in the middle of February. It's unreal. What yeah. kinds of things do you need well, we from need governments to, need. to to because you know you you say this it's changing well, the climate is changing you're feeling the yeah. impacts first in many ways so yeah so what needs to be done to you know make our, that connection in our region, in our region uh, where there's a high cost of living already affecting the community and if we have to fly in our our goods and that you know it's going to double it's going to double the cost of living. It's already high enough, and if we have to fly in our stuff, so I don't know. I, so, I guess that yeah. we have no choice but to do that. But on top of that, we don't have the funds to do that. A long-term solution would be to construct an all-weather road in our region. You know, there's uh, uh, eighteen thousand people plus in the region right now. It would be beneficial for. All the communities, if we were to have a all-weather road constructed. Has there been opposition to that? Why hasn't that happened before? When uh, NDP was in power a couple of years ago, there was an East Side Road Authority uh, trying to get the roads in there. And when uh, conservatives got in, they scrapped that East Side Road Authority. Are there plans to to revive that plan? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I hope I hope uh, I hope they do since we have NDP in here now in Manitoba I hope uh, they revive something you know something has to be done What's your sense of what's going to happen over the next few days do you think the road is going to open Well you know we had declared a state of emergency yesterday mm-hmm. uh we can't sit idly by and wait cuz uh, the window is getting smaller every day That's all I could say the weather is not cooperating Still, we have this weather. It is raining on and off there, and the uh, snow is melting. You know, it's it doesn't look promising, but I'm still hopeful. The as you as you watch the the weather situation, the state of emergency, as you mentioned, what will that allow you to do? What will that trigger now? 
I don't know. I, we're hoping to get something like, like for my community, like I say, we only have a week's worth of fuel. You know, we're going to be needing fuel for our school buses and our uh, our water delivery trucks and our sewage trucks. You know, we depend on those things. Our elders depend on those things because we have about 80% that need water deliveries in within the community. So, yeah, we we, we really going to be needing our trucks to come in if, if we run out, especially... The school buses, you know, we, I don't, I don't want to close the school down because of no fuel and that, you know. But what do we have other? I don't know. I, I'm just, it's very concerning to me. I'm very worried. Yeah. I'm very worried what what's going to happen. That's why uh, I guess we're calling on the state of emergency. You know, and something needs to be done. Chief, not yeah. thank you for your time. Okay, thank you, thank you for having me. Take care. Bye. Charles Knott is the chief of Garden Hill First Nation. He's in Winnipeg. It is the first of its kind, a deep purple tomato. But the color isn't the only thing that's new about it. It's also the first genetically modified food crop to be sold directly to home gardeners in the United States. The seeds went on sale to the general public for the first time this past weekend. Kathy Martin is the plant biologist who created the purple tomatoes. We reached her in Norwich, England. Kathy, the the seeds have been out in the world, up for sale for a few days now. What's the response been? It's been amazing. I think we've got 4,500 orders already. Is that what you expected? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I really didn't expect that at all. It's just great. And uh, I think people are curious. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's going to be a novelty, but, uh, you know, just a boom and bust. But uh, I really hope people like them. <laughs> They're approved for sale in the U.S. Canadian home gardeners might be wondering if they can get them as well. Not yet. Uh, so, it, in fact, the approval for sales came from USDA through the Secure Rule, and we have to do the same thing in Canada. So, and and we are working on it, but uh, one step at a time. But des- <laughs> desperately want Canadians to be able to grow them too. Noted. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the word novelty, uh, and, and certainly they're they're very beautiful to look at, especially if you love the color purple. But tomatoes are already kind of lovely and pretty powerful and healthy as they are. So why do this? Um, it was it was done as part of an academic exercise mm-hmm. to try and increase the, the amount of antioxidants in fruit, basically. But yeah. we use tomato as a model. The goal, though, to make them healthier, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And, and we were able to show with some animal experiments that... Um, uh, mice that were ca- prone to cancer lived about 30% longer if they were eating a diet enriched with the purple tomatoes compared to red ones. So I think there's something in it. What do they taste like? They taste like tomatoes. <laughs> but what we've done is uh, that since we got the approval from USDA, mm-hmm. we've done some breeding so to make them taste better because when you do something in the lab, it tends to be with a, a, a model variety. Yeah. 
And so we outcross them to heirloom varieties, which tend to taste really good. So we wanted to offer something that tasted good and looked good. You know, when people hear genetically modified, GMO, these are <laughs> these are dirty words, phrases in people's minds now. Um, don't they have a right to be a concerned? Should they be concerned about what of you're doing course. here? And if people are that concerned, then they can choose not to eat them. Um, we're, we're only offering them to people to see if they like them. And I personally don't think that there's anything dirty about what we've done. We're not working for a big multinational or anything like that. And we very much wanted to do something for consumers rather than for big business. There is a lot of skepticism and and a Pew study in 2020 suggested that most Americans perceive them as, as worse for their health than a food that has no genetic modification. So was part of this project as well to to try to make people more open to GMOs? I mean, I wouldn't have said that, that it was absolutely an academic mm-hmm. uh, exercise that yeah. when we first developed them, but we developed them 15 years ago. I mean, we published on it 15 years ago. So uh, since then, it's been, it has been perhaps a an exercise in trying to show that you can do good things that are, are focused on consumers. I mean, there, I think the evidence that genetic modification itself is in any way dangerous or, or might impact negatively your health is absolutely not there. <laughs> and I haven't seen any evidence that that's the case. You made a, you made a distinction uh, just a, a moment ago uh, talking about the scale of production mm-hmm. and talking about, you know, larger corporations, larger companies yeah. doing this. Is that the distinction you want to underline for, for listeners here? Yeah, I'm very enthusiastic about the idea of getting it out to home growers mm-hmm. because I like to do, to grow things in my garden and grow novelties and I know that they're beautiful and they taste good. So, <laughs> so, so it's not something I want to, don't want to create a war or anything like that. I just think that, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'd very much like to be doing this, you know, local cultivation and through local vendors in the future. Do you you worry, though, when when there's a a good idea that catches on sometimes, as you'll know, that it will go from smaller scale to very, very big? I'm an academic. (laughs) I had (laughs) my day job and this has been something that's been bubbling along. So I don't worry. I don't worry about that. Uh, And I don't worry about copycats either. So it's been so hard to get it (laughs) deregulated and approved. And I'd love to I'd love it to be available in Canada. I think there's some interest in South America and perhaps in Australia. And, of course, I would like them to be available in the UK because the greatest irony is that they were produced in the UK and we can't buy them here and grow them here. (laughs) Are you doing any more tomato work? Any other surprising colors we may expect? Well, we have um, another tomato which which is enriched in resveratrol. And that's a compound that you can get in your diet, but only from drinking red wine, quite good red wines, or or eating peanuts. And um, so we have a, a, a new tomato that has the anthocyanins and resveratrol in it. It has mm-hmm. a slightly different color, so we call it bronze. And I'd quite like to bring that one to the market too. But bronze, it takes yes. a long time. <laughs> looks and we've shown that that's good for inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. It's going to make a pretty beautiful plate. Bronze and purple. Yes, I think tomatoes. so. <laughs> I have some pictures of uh, multicolored tomatoes and salad. Kathy, thank you for your time. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Cheerio.
Kathy Martin is a plant biologist and the creator of the Purple Tomato. We reached her in Norwich, England. Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. In November 2021, Jennifer and James Crumbly bought their 15-year-old son, Ethan, a gun. His mother took him to a shooting range to test it out. Then his parents left it in their home where their son could access it. Just days later, Ethan Crumbly used that gun to carry out the deadliest school shooting in Michigan history. Now, more than two years later, a jury has found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of involuntary manslaughter. It's the first time a parent has been held directly responsible for a school shooting committed by their child in the United States. Craig Schilling's son, Justin, was one of the four students killed at Oxford High School. We reached him in Oxford, Michigan. Craig, you woke up today knowing Jennifer Crumbly was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Did that knowledge make it easier to sleep through the night? Um, last night, I, I slept through the, very well because it was just an exhausting day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, waking up this morning, knowing uh, that she was convicted, um, it, 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 it's definitely a load off my chest, a little bit off my mind. But um, knowing that there's still a lot more to do, um, it just kind of shifts my focus to the next thing and it's definitely like a cycle. Hearing those words yesterday, the guilty verdict, after after all that you've been through and all of these months, how did that sit with you to hear it out loud? Well, there was a pretty broad range of emotions. Um, the tensions were high. Um, you know, when they finally came, um, I mean, everybody had a deep exhale, and you know, you could hear it, and I can almost feel the energy in the room change. And it was a moment for sure. Um, there's no, you know, happiness or about anything in this situation, so I can't really say that you know I'm happy for it. I just, I'm just glad that you know the outcome went the way that we were mm-hmm. hoping for. Ethan Crumbly was sentenced to life in prison in a previous proceeding without parole. That was last year. You mentioned the next step. What is the next step legally? Uh, well, it's the next trial. Uh, it starts in a few weeks uh, for the father. Um, you know, I'm still kind of uh, we're digesting what, what happened, and I'm sure that uh, based on what happened, um, there'll be it will affect the, the next trial. You know, I, over the course of this trial, 
You heard the prosecution say Jennifer Crumbly failed to properly secure the gun, that she and her husband, who, as we've said, is also going to stand trial, (coughs) failed to adequately address her son's mental health issues. Was there something you heard that did sort of stop you? Well, uh, yes. I mean, the the, the remarks that she made on her uh, stand there, her testimony about um, the fact that she wouldn't have done anything different. Uh, yeah, she said she wouldn't have done anything lot. differently. Right. Mm-hmm. That that was a uh, that was the, the the most shocking part of of the trial for me. Um, just hearing her say that, and it, I found that was really disrespectful to the families and you know the victims. You mentioned that moment where you and the other parents exhaled. What are they telling you about this decision now? I, I mean, everybody has that, that same similar feelings. Um, and we've been talking more uh, in recent weeks um, regarding uh, some of the other action that, that we're working on. What is that action? We have, you know, contacted our governor's office and uh, we're working with the state to, to try and implement uh, a systemic change in and how uh, things are run, and, you know how schools are operating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a it's a movement, and there's a lot of people in the community that are behind us, and I can imagine um, there's a lot of people everywhere that you know want to see the right um, types of programs in their own school districts and, you know, from their own state. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just to try and, you know, short this kind of stuff from happening again, you know, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that, you know, our society is the way it is and, you know, it's all it's all just sad. It's it's something that doesn't really need to need to be. It is very sad. You said after the verdict that it feels like a, a milestone, this decision. Do you, do you think it sends a message to parents across the United States as well? Absolutely. Um, I, I feel that it, it, it does get a message across. And, you know, the uh, the culpability of of this type of thing is, uh, is, is, is more broader than just the, the person who does it. Um, and we're thankful to have the law enforcement and the investigators and the prosecutors that you know, you know, worked tirelessly on the case to to make sure that it was dealt with right and that all the evidence was presented in an you know, appropriate way and you know they uh, they did a great job and yeah it's uh it was a milestone for sure. I wanted to talk as well about Justin. Your son, uh, if you wouldn't mind, what would you want our listeners to know about him? Oh, geez, he was a he was a great kid. Um, he loved he loved hunting, fishing, outdoors. He was a very outdoorsy kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he loved to travel, uh, experience different places, and and meet new people. I mean, he was that was a, I mean, I would I would think that that was one of his favorite things to do was to like bring somebody new into his life and um you know just interact and let them know you know that they're welcome and a very dynamic individual uh, with a great personality sounds um, like it yeah real bright future 
Craig, I'm very sorry for your loss. I'm very appreciative of your time. I hope you do get some some moments to yourself. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Neil. Appreciate you. That was Craig Schilling, whose son was killed in the mass shooting at Oxford High School in 2021. He's in Oxford, Michigan. of students at Calgary's Western Canada High School participating in one of the school walkouts that took place across Alberta today. As you can hear, they're calling for trans rights and protesting a series of new rules tabled by the provincial government. Together, the policies will reduce access to puberty blockers, require parental permission for name or pronoun changes in schools, bar trans women and girls from participating in a variety of sports, and prohibit gender reassignment surgeries under the age of 17, which it should be noted are extraordinarily rare. According to Western Canada students, Yomati Capo and Charlie Anderson, all of that harms kids. And they see the province's whole approach as hypocritical, coming from a premier whose legal first name isn't actually Danielle. Today we are protesting against Marlena Smith's new, um, new legislation against trans kids. She's taking away rights from people who haven't done anything wrong. She's taking away rights from people... It's just a violation of human rights. It's absolutely disgusting that that's something that she could do to like thousands of trans kids out there. I don't think she understands how she's affecting these kids, how she's affecting their mental health. It's just disgusting to me. I'm just like hearing a whole lot of fear, like a whole lot of like a whole lot of kids are scared about like what this means. Like their parents will find out that they use a different name at school. They can't use their preferred pronouns. I know some kids who are who wanted to start some gender affirming like treatment and now they're worried that they can't do it. This isn't right. Like, we should be able to respect every human being, whether they're trans, whether they're any type of LGBTQ. It's just disgusting that um, Marlena Smith would deny them, like, just basic human respect. And so do you think this protest will make a difference? I think that in protesting, we're fighting for, like, making a difference. Like, I think that this will make a difference because we're at least saying something instead of keeping quiet. So tell us why you came out today. Um, I just think it's really important that kids have a safe space to go because I know that I have a few friends that school is their safe place and it's always been their safe place. Um, They're just feeling scared, mostly, um, about... Protect trans youth! Trans youth! Protect trans youth! Protect trans youth! Protect trans youth! Just being part of the LGBTQ plus community, it makes me feel um, like better to know that there are people out there that are willing to stand up for people that maybe don't have the voice or don't have the courage to speak up for themselves. Protect trans youth! Protect trans youth! Protect trans youth! Protect trans youth! Western Canada High School students Yomadi Capo and Charlie Anderson at a school walkout in protest of Alberta's new transgender policies today. They were speaking with the CBC's Aaron Collins.
Médecins Sans Frontières is warning that an absolutely catastrophic situation is unfolding in a camp for displaced people in Sudan's North Darfur region. The NGO carried out a malnutrition and mortality survey at Zamzam camp recently. That survey estimates that at least one child is dying every two hours in the camp and says malnutrition has reached emergency levels. It's calling for a mass mobilization of the international community, saying that UN agencies and international NGOs have maintained only a limited presence in North Darfur since the war broke out in April. Emmanuel Berbet is a doctor with MSF who just returned from a month in North Darfur. He was in the region's capital, Al-Fashir, and the camp nearby. We reached him in Paris. Emmanuel, in the month that you were there, I know you saw many children and their families and heard from them, but there's one patient in particular I know who stays with you. Can you tell us about him? So Adam is um, nine months old. Um, He was five kg last week and he was accompanied by a mother. Um, Actually, he was in the nutritional program already for a few months, but he missed a couple of appointments. And um, when I uh, discussed with him, I asked, uh, why did he miss his appointment? And we have to readmit him and restart from zero. And her mother explained me that um, her husband, uh, husband was killed, actually, mm. uh, recently. And that's why she, she had to, to, to miss his appointment. They left um, south of um, North Darfur six months ago uh, due to the violence. And she arrived in the camp. She complained mostly about the, the, the water that she has to pay for and for bad quality water and for the food that she has to buy and she has no money. So she relies completely on the solidarity of a couple of local people mm-hmm. who try to support her, but they are themselves really poor with many yeah. kids. They have to pay for uh, water in the refugee camp. Yeah, so it's actually for now, but we need a deeper assessment, but it seems that the main system in place, uh, some businessmen own a whale or a water trucking system, like mm-hmm. they pay for the water to come in the camp, and these businessmen sell it uh, to the population. The statistics are, our listeners heard in the introduction to mm. our conversation, a child every two hours dying, 13, your organization estimates, every day. It is horrifying and staggering to hear. If you don't get the help that, that you're asking for now, how will that situation change? The, the problem, and that's why we... We really want to, to deploy and to request, uh, to, to deploy uh, the, the full humanitarian uh, response as it should be, is that it's going to deteriorate for sure. January is a period of the year where the malnutrition is the lowest because the harvest has been done. So there, there is supposed to be some stock of food uh, available at the household level. We are out of uh, specific epidemic except malaria. And, um, I mean, the survey we did in January, we covered the period of uh, November, December, and there were a lot of malaria. There are still some malaria. But uh, what I mean that there is no missiles yet. There is no significant diarrheal epidemic uh, uh, like shigellosis, salmonellosis, hepatitis B, and this can affect a lot uh, the mortality. Um, missiles especially usually starts in uh, March in this situation. A lot of vaccinations were not done last year. And in addition to that, uh, the small stocks of food that are available at the um, uh, household level uh, will diminish. The food pri- commodities prices will continue to grow up and skyrocket. And it will continue growing and deteriorate malnutrition rates and mortality to reach probably a very maximum around June and July in a mm-hmm. more than alarming situation. Yeah. It, it will get worse. What is already yeah, bad will, get, will, worse. will yeah. get much worse. Yeah. At the clinic that, that MSF is running mm-hmm. in the Zamzam camp, 
you know, where are people coming from? How far do they have to travel just to be able to see you and the other doctors? Um, we have many patients, stories of patients who come from Tawila, for example, which is a city of more than 50 kilometers from Zamzam camp, who come uh, during the day, wait overnight in order to get the opportunity to get some nutritional products and uh, medications for free uh, the day after. This is really, uh, I mean, unusual huh? to, mm. to see people making such distances for probably little uh, little supply or little... Uh, it's, we are not talking about, you know, coming back with uh, 50 kg of uh, cereals for your whole family. Mm -hmm. uh, this is really due to the complete collapse of the, of the health system, uh, especially about the primary and secondary and tertiary uh, health system. Um, but there is just nothing else to go to. So we are in El Fashir locality, the only major uh, international actor which um, developed the functional activities for uh, primary and secondary health care. The United Nations is asking for 4.1 billion dollars US mm -hmm. for these humanitarian efforts in Sudan and for the neighboring countries where people have had mm -hmm. to flee to. UN aid chief Martin Griffiths spoke about this this morning. The figures speak for themselves. There's 25 million people in Sudan mm -hmm. who need assistance. Half of them are children. That's an astonishing figure. 14 million children are in need of humanitarian assistance. We must not forget Sudan. That's the simple message that I have to say today. Do you think people in the international community have forgotten Sudan? Uh, my personal impression is, is a yes. This current crisis is clearly uh, one of the largest displacement of population and humanitarian crisis. And People just don't know, and the means don't come, resources don't come, agencies are not present. We have to remember huh, that the last huge crisis in, in Darfur uh, was uh, the genocide in 2003 and 2004. Uh, it was a massive uh, humanitarian response from the UN agencies and also mm -hmm. from, uh, from, uh, from MSF and many uh, international actors. But the thing is that even in 2003 and 2004, because there was a massive scale-up of all these actors, we didn't have these uh, levels of uh, infantile mal malnutrition and mortality, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is really a need for, for shock uh, yeah. in the international uh, community or uh, in terms of international recognition in order the, the, the needs to come and not to come in months, in coming months, to come now, now, like tomorrow. Emmanuel, thank you. Uh, thanks to you. Thanks to you. Dr. Emmanuel Berbin is a food security and nutrition referent with MSF. He's in Paris. Stephen Colbert is the first to admit it was an unlikely friendship, but last night the Late Show host took a few minutes to pay tribute to his friend Toby Keith. The country music star died on Monday. He was 62. He had a lot of hits over his long career, but he became best known for unapologetically patriotic anthems, many of which he played at former President Donald Trump's pre-inaugural Make America Great Again celebration. So given their respective politics, you might have thought that Mr. Colbert and Mr. Keith would be at odds. 
But as Stephen Colbert acknowledged in his tribute last night, Toby Keith taught him not to prejudge a guest. I was shocked and saddened when I saw the news this morning. I knew Toby was ill. I mean, he'd been fighting stomach cancer for some time, but I still had hope that we'd see each other again and that we would hear him on the stage. Because I was lucky enough to become friends with Toby over the years, as improbable as that seems. We met very early on on the Colbert Report. And back then, there was a not-so-helpful legend that I had knives out for some of my guests. And it didn't help that at the beginning, I sometimes did. And I remember having some kind of plan for Toby, I think. But right before I went on stage, I remember vividly looking down at my shoes and saying, what are you doing? You're a host. He's your guest. Make him feel welcome. See who he is. And what do you know? We hit it off like a house of fire. I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed talking to Toby Keith. And evidently, Toby had a good time, too, because after the show, he turned and caught my eye and said, Hey, man, you do a great job. Whatever the it is you do. (laughs) And I took that as the greatest compliment, so much so that my my then head writer, Allison Silverman, uh, for Christmas, had that stitched on a pillow for me. It has been in my office ever since. That day, Toby taught me not to prejudge a guest and to have my intention, but to keep my eyes open to the reality of who they are. And for that lesson and for a lot of other things, I'm always going to be grateful. This is a man who rose from Oklahoma's oil fields where he worked on a rig and the state's football fields where he was a semi-professional defensive end to become one of the most consistent hit makers in country music for more than three decades. 20 Billboard number one songs. 42 top 10 hits, and rooms full of platinum and gold albums. Toby was a great performer, unapologetically patriotic, opinionated, brash, often controversial, but resonating with legions of fans by writing their lives in a very real and entertaining way. So we had him on a lot. He was always fun. I think he enjoyed how unlikely a pair we seemed. I sure did. You know, like when when people are excited when a duck and a horse are friends? (laughs) Well, for the record, I was the duck. (laughs) But Toby was always surprising people. You would think you you know who Toby Keith was. And then you're watching Obama's Nobel acceptance speech, and there's Toby Keith giving him a standing ovation. Toby, what are you doing this time? Toby taught me not to judge people too quickly. It's something we all need to remember, because I'm sure Toby and I disagreed about many things, as so many Americans do these days. More and more of us are angrier and angrier with each other. But tonight, I will issue this invitation to anybody. I do not care who you are. I will meet you at this place. I will meet you at being brokenhearted that Toby Keith is gone. That was Stephen Colbert paying tribute to Toby Keith on The Late Show last night. The country music star died on Monday. He was 62. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.